Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to AccessibleWorld.org, to a world view of history. The date is Wednesday, April 21, 2010. And we're just delighted to be here to discuss another uh, great book. So without further ado, let me introduce our host for the evening, Don Queen. Thank you, Bob. Good evening. Our book for tonight is The Conquerors, Roosevelt, Truman, and the Destruction of Nazi Germany, 1944-1945, by Michael Beschloss. In today's chaotic post-9-11 world, the reconstruction of a now united Europe and of our former enemies, Germany and Japan, seem to be the only successes the United States has had in foreign affairs since it became a major power on the world scene. Michael Benchloss describes how the vengeful Morgenthau plan developed by FDR's closest friend and Secretary of the Treasury almost caused us to repeat the same mistakes we made after World War I. Tonight we have selections from an interview with the author and NPR's Terry Gross which took place on October 30th, 2002. First, in order to give you a feeling for the mood of the time and the militarism which Roosevelt railed against, let's play a brief excerpt from a Nazi propaganda film clip. Fresh Air, I'm Terry Gross. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss has written a new book that he describes as telling the story of an important American success. He says, during World War II, many Americans expected that even if the Allies won the war, the world would someday have to cope again with a militaristic Germany under some future version of Hitler. Instead, almost 60 years after VE Day, Germany is democratic and peaceful. Beschloss's new book, The Conquerors, Roosevelt, Truman, and the Destruction of Hitler's Germany, draws on recently opened American, Soviet, and British documents, as well as private diaries, letters, and audio recordings. Beschloss is the author of six previous books, including two annotated collections of Lyndon Johnson's tapes. He's a frequent commentator on ABC News and public television. One of the questions Beschloss set out to answer in his new book is how much did FDR know about the Nazi death camps? I asked him if there is new information on this. There is, and I've always admired Roosevelt hugely and still do. I mean, he's the one who won this war, and if it weren't for him, we'd be living in a very different world. But I was frankly pretty disappointed because what I found was that Roosevelt, as early as 1942, had pretty good information about the fact that the Nazis and Adolf Hitler were committing this great crime in human history, the murder of the Jews, millions of Jews being murdered at the time. And, you know, knowing Roosevelt just as an historian, I would have expected him to react to that by giving a speech, releasing the evidence, and telling Americans this is the kind of horrible thing that the Nazis and Adolf Hitler do. This is the reason that we're fighting this war. And what I found was that he did something that was very different from that. There were Jewish leaders as early as 42 through 1943 into 44 that would go to Roosevelt in the Oval Office and they would say, here's the evidence, you must speak out against this, release the information, give a speech saying to the Nazis, if you do not stop this, then if the Allies win the war, there's going to be huge punishment, perhaps that will cause some of the people participating in this genocide to stop. And to my huge disappointment, Roosevelt kept on saying, I won't do it. Uh, the way to deal with this is simply to win the war as soon as possible. And with 2020 hindsight, I don't think that was enough. 
You say one of the things that Roosevelt was worried about was that anti-Semites in America would say that he was fighting a Jewish war in Europe if he released, you know, evidence of of the death camps and made a big issue out of that. Exactly what was he afraid of? How much power did the anti-Semites in the United States have? They had a lot, and I think it shouldn't be underestimated. There were a lot of anti-Semites, open ones, in Congress and the House of Senate, giving speeches of a kind that you couldn't imagine. At the same time, you know, it's the duty of a president to try to create a society in which these people do not loom so large. Roosevelt, I think, was too worried during World War II about the charges of people like Charles Lindbergh, who before World War II had said, Roosevelt is trying to get you Americans involved in a war against Germany to save the Jews. Don't get involved in this Jewish war. Roosevelt, I think, was oversensitive to that. One of the things I've got in the book is that Roosevelt says to one of his cronies, he says, if an American demagogue like Huey Long ever took up the cause of anti-Semitism, he said, the blood flowing through the streets of New York City would be even greater than the blood flowing through the streets, Jewish blood, in Berlin. That was how oversensitive he was to this. And the other thing is that Roosevelt had an idea, which is fortunately very out of date nowadays, that if a leader of an ethnic group like the Jews came to him and said, I want you to do something about the Holocaust while you're fighting this war, he thought that was unpatriotic. It was sort of special pleading. He once had a lunch early in the war with Leo Crowley, a Catholic who worked for him, and Henry Morgenthau, his Treasury Secretary and very close friend, and to both of their surprise, he said, remember, this is a Protestant country, and you Catholics and Jews are here under sufferance, so during this war, it's your job to do anything I want. Um, say FDR decided to take action uh, to try to, to end the death camps. By early 1944, we had the possibility of using American bombers that could have flown over a camp like Auschwitz, the great death camp, and bombed it made sure that it could not be used to kill Jews and others. Roosevelt did not allow that to happen. He also said he could have bombed the railroads that took uh, Jews in boxcars to the death camps. That would have also helped, but probably not as much, because if you bomb, for instance, a rail line, that could have been rebuilt fairly quickly. But to build a death camp with all that awful machinery, that would have taken a longer period of time. Because if you go back to the secret record of what Roosevelt was doing during World War II, the arresting thing, Terry, is that, you know, you'd expect, given the, the fact that the Holocaust was so important, that he would have been talking about it, writing about it when he met with Churchill and Stalin. This would have been a big issue at their summits. And I looked, for instance, through his correspondence, the correspondence between Roosevelt and Churchill, the Holocaust is never mentioned. I looked at the records of what Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt said to one another at these famous summits like Tehran and Yalta, the Holocaust was never mentioned. Roosevelt, until the spring of 1944, never even mentioned in public the fact that the Nazis were murdering Jews. And so from Roosevelt's point of view during World War II, sadly, the Holocaust, which was not called that in those days, the genocide against Jews was something that he was concerned about, but it certainly did not have the enormous priority that it should have. Would you go so far as to call FDR anti-Semitic, or do you think that this was a, a, a kind of pragmatic uh, thing that he was doing in overlooking the Holocaust and just pursuing the larger war? No, I would never call FDR anti-Semitic, which I think really is a term that should be reserved for people who are strenuously and energetically trying to hurt and oppose Jews, I think he was insensitive. For instance, if a WASP American, an Anglo-American, had come to Roosevelt in 1940 and said, I think we should aid Britain, Roosevelt wouldn't have dreamt of throwing him out of the office and saying, why are you pleading for your own ethnic group? But if a Jewish American had come to Roosevelt, as they did, and said, I want you to do something about the Holocaust, Roosevelt would have felt it was right to be skeptical and say, well, maybe you're unpatriotic because you're not devoted to the war effort. Roosevelt had a policy of unconditional surrender. Germany had to surrender unconditionally. Why did he insist on that? Well, you know, we've been talking about what I think is the deeply disappointing side of Roosevelt in World War II. Unconditional surrender, I think, is the wonderful side. At the beginning of World War II, when the U.S. got into this war against Germany and Japan, it was Roosevelt in the American government, beyond almost anyone else, who said, 
we're not fighting this war merely to get Hitler to surrender. We've got to do it differently this time. In World War One, we fought against the Kaiser and the Germans, and we had a negotiated settlement. And the result of that was that the Germans came back stronger than ever, waged a second world war against the, against the world. In the 1940s, you know, when you thought of the Germans, you thought of the fact that this was a country that had waged three big wars in a generation, Franco-Prussian War and the two world wars. There was a feeling that there was something almost in the German gene pool that made them want to make war. One thing Roosevelt said privately at the time, I've got it in the book, he says, you know, I think that this thing in the Germans is so strong that we may, after the war, have to castrate the German men to keep them from reproducing people who want to make war. I don't think he meant that literally, but the point is that that is the attitude that he had, that if you were going to fight against Germany, you had to have an unconditional surrender by Hitler or whoever was in power at that time, and the U.S. and the Allies would have to go in, start from scratch, and from the ground up build Germany into a democracy, which ultimately, of course, thankfully, is what happened. How controversial was this idea of unconditional surrender within the FDR administration? Very, and it's sort of one of the unspoken things about World War II because, you know, we read all these World War II books about the way the soldiers fought and the way that Eisenhower and Marshall and Roosevelt ran the war, but what people don't mention is the fact that if Roosevelt had not been for unconditional surrender, World War II in Europe could have ended perhaps a year or two earlier. We Americans would not have lost a lot of lives who were given because Roosevelt said, I'm not going to settle for making a deal with Hitler or some German government. I want to go all the way, I want the Allies to go all the way to Berlin and essentially achieve scorched earth so that we can start this uh, from the ground up after the war. It was very controversial. Churchill didn't want it. Stalin didn't want it. A lot of Roosevelt's own people didn't want it. Even Eisenhower and Marshall privately said to Roosevelt, why do we have to uh, have unconditional surrender? It's killing an awful lot of American boys. FDR was also afraid that the Soviets would make their own separate pact with the Germans. What were the concerns about that? That was another reason for unconditional surrender, because if you didn't say uh, with Stalin and Churchill that the only thing we three allies will settle for is the white flag flying over Berlin, at the end of this thing, there would have been an enormous temptation for some group inside Germany to try to make a deal with the Russians or with the British or the Americans to stop the war and stop the fighting. For instance, in 1944 and 1943, there were a number of groups that were within Germany trying to kill Adolf Hitler with the idea that perhaps they would surrender, for instance, to the British and the Americans because they thought that if the British and Americans conquered Germany, they would be easier on the Germans than the Russians would have been. And there were others who were doing the same thing with the Russians. So if you didn't have Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill all agreeing that the only thing we will settle for is an unconditional surrender to all three allies, Roosevelt knew that there was a good chance that Stalin might make some deal with some group within Germany to... You know, stop the fighting on the Eastern Front and end the war, and the British and the Americans would be left holding the bag. Roosevelt didn't come from a, a military background. Um, what do you think he was able to draw on in thinking about how to wage the war or in calling for the unconditional surrender of Germany? What kind of experience did he have that prepared him for this? The biggest experience was this. Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet in World War I. He was one of those who actually argued with Wilson and said, I think you should have unconditional surrender, demand that from the Kaiser, and occupy Germany after the war to make sure it becomes a democracy. Wilson turned that down, and of course the Treaty of Versailles was something very different. So because Roosevelt had that searing first-hand experience, I think we were terribly lucky that he was president in the 1940s and knew that we had to do something that was very different if we didn't want another Hitler to plague the world again. Now, Henry Morgenthau, who you spoke about briefly before, was only the second Jewish person to, to serve in an American presidential cabinet. He was the one who really thought FDR should be doing something to specifically address the Holocaust. And he came up with this plan for post-war Germany. Describe the plan that Henry Morgenthau, the Secretary of the Treasury, came up with. Well, Morgenthau, I found one of the most mesmerizing people in the book, because here is this man, as I was saying earlier, Roosevelt had made him Treasury Secretary. He was certainly his closest friend in government. 
But a lot of Morgenthau's position with Roosevelt had to do with the fact that he did not bring up Jewish concerns with the president. He was very careful about that, wouldn't raise them because he thought that if he did that, that Roosevelt would be alienated from him and say, well, this is someone who is really more concerned about uh, Jewish affairs than he is uh, about American affairs. So Morgenthau was quite quiet, not only about the Holocaust, but even in the late 1930s about getting the United States and Roosevelt to do things to help Jews get out of Germany. And something changed him. And the something was this. In 1943, Morgenthau was called on by Rabbi Stephen Wise, who had actually officiated at his wedding. Wise came to Morgenthau and said, you just don't know what's going on in Germany. Here are the reports of the death camps and the people being shot and the people being gassed, all these horrible things that are happening. He said to Morgenthau, did you know that they are making lampshades out of the skins of the Jews? At this point, Morgenthau almost fainted. He had to leave the room. And from that moment on, Morgenthau was radicalized. It was not this timid person that he had been before. He basically said, even if FDR doesn't like what I have to say, this is so important that if he fires me, so it will have to be. And that's when he went to Roosevelt and said, you have to do more to get Jewish refugees out. You have to do more to try to stop the Holocaust. And he did something else. He went on to say, not only do you have to do those things, Mr. President, you have to be even fiercer about post-war Germany, and I will write you a plan, which he did. And Morgenthau's plan was this. He said, when the war is over, we should destroy all German factories, we should flood the coal mines, we, could we should destroy almost all of their economic infrastructure so that the Germans will stew in their own juice. They might even have to starve for a while. That's the only way that the Germans will realize that they have lost the war and therefore come to the Americans for help and look to our way of doing things. Did Morgenthau see this as, as, a, as a way of basically, basically transforming Germany from an industrial state to an agricultural one? He did. He wanted it to be reduced to a farming state, and this was something that he actually shared with Roosevelt because Morgenthau and Roosevelt were both farmers in, in, in uh, the Hudson Valley of New York. They all felt that the best state of nature for a human being was the Jeffersonian agrarian state of nature, and that if you wanted a democracy that was Jeffersonian, you started it out uh, by being a, a farming country, and that was his idea for Germany, which attracted Roosevelt a lot. And what about Churchill and Stalin? What did they think of the Morgenthau plan? Stalin would have loved it because what Stalin wanted, we now know, and I, I've been able to write about this because we now have a lot of documents that have just come out of the former Soviet Union that show us Stalin's thinking. What Stalin wanted was a decimated, weak Germany of exactly the kind that Morgenthau was talking about because Stalin felt if, that if Germany were that weak, there'd be a vacuum in the middle of Europe, so after the war the, the Red Army could roll through, you might very easily have a Soviet Europe. Churchill saw exactly that, and he was terrified of the Morgenthau plan because he thought that it was a recipe for a communist Europe. Do you think Churchill was right to be suspicious? I think he was, uh, because as it turned out, of course, in the end, after World War II, the United States built up West Germany as an obstacle to the Soviet Union and Europe. Had we not done that, you might well have had a Soviet Europe. After Roosevelt's death in April 1945, when Truman becomes president, he has to deal with the Morgenthau plan for a post-war Germany, the plan you, you had just described. Truman didn't like that plan. In fact, he asked Morgenthau to resign from his position as Secretary of the Treasury, which Morgenthau did. What was Truman's problem with the Morgenthau plan? Well, it's this interesting relationship. Uh, Morgenthau lasted a few months into the Truman administration and actually thought he might be kept on by Truman, and that was because he was Roosevelt's closest friend, and he thought he was pretty indispensable, too. He didn't realize that something had happened years ago that forever jaundiced Truman against him, and that is that when Truman was elected to the Senate in 1934, he came to Washington, a lot of people in Washington, even Democrats, fellow Democrats, thought he, that Truman was this sort of corrupt party boss who had somehow sleezed in the U.S. Senate, and some of them snubbed him. 
and during Truman's first weeks in Washington, he went to call on the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, and was told that Morgenthau was out and couldn't see him, but Truman, because he had a bit of an inferiority complex about this, was always convinced that Morgenthau just refused to see him because he thought that Truman was a sleazy person and didn't want to lower himself to have this meeting. So in comes Morgenthau to see Truman just after Truman is president, and needless to say, Truman was against the Morgenthau plan for Germany. Truman was. He felt that it would be too harsh. There's another element of this which is a little bit more awkward, and that is that Truman, on in public, on the large things, was large-minded about Jews and Jewish affairs. He was the president who famously recognized Israel, for example, in 1948. But one thing I found that was pretty distressing is that in private, Truman had this sort of stream of anti-Semitic comments. For instance, a couple of weeks after he becomes president, he writes in his diary, the Jews think that God made them the chosen people. Well, I think he had better judgment. And he would say that New York City is a kike town, quote-unquote, or a greedy person was like a Jewish merchant. One of the comments I report in the book is that he said neither Morgenthau nor any of the Jew boys would be going to Potsdam. Truman was overly skeptical of Jews in the government and their ability to think not like Jews, but like Americans. To some extent, I think he suspected that Jews had dual loyalties, which is an absolutely dreadful thing. And that's something that I found actually ran through much of the Roosevelt and Truman administration. For instance, when Morgenthau came up with his plan in 1944 to be very hard on Germany after World War II, you'd find people like Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, saying that Morgenthau, he'd say in private in his diary, Morgenthau is a Jew who likes to push his way into Germany. He's the last person who should be doing this. And he called the Morgenthau plan Semitism gone wild for vengeance. There was this kind of talk. One thing that I think is sort of inspiring, Terry, is that Nowadays, I think you'd see very little talk like that, and that's the kind of thing that's really been banished from most of American life. I want to ask you a question about history and historians. You know, recently there have been a couple of historians who have been, um, their their, their work has been tarnished by charges of um, plagiarism. And I'm thinking of Doris Kearns Goodwin and the late Stephen Ambrose. And, you know, apparently one of the things that went wrong is that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that they were using researchers who, in writing up history, you know, borrowed directly from from texts that they were using during the research. Um, I'm wondering what impact you think this is having on people who write popular histories, including yourself. Well, I, you know, I, I like both of them, and I like Steve Ambrose very much humanly, and I don't want to talk about their professional cases because I haven't studied them sort of bit by bit. But what I can tell you is about what I do, and that is that I don't use a research assistant in the sense of some people use them to take notes or in some cases to, you know, sort of do, I guess, perhaps some writing in the cases of some people. My feeling is that if you don't do that kind of thing yourself, in a way it's not entirely your book. So on this book, for instance, I had my sister-in-law do some Xeroxing at the very beginning, I think, of newspaper articles. And at the very end, I had someone for the last couple of months of the 11 years of writing uh, who helped me get books out of the library and get primary sources for me to use. So I think the dividing line is really, you know, it's an absolutely fine thing to get people to help you if they're fetching documents or if they're fetching books or doing Xeroxing. I think there's a difference between that and someone who is taking notes and really getting into sort of the meat of writing history. And it's something I've never done and probably couldn't do temperamentally anyway because I'm probably too much of an obsessive micromanager. Your work as a historian has relied on and benefited from the fact that people in the White House and people who've worked with them have taken notes, they've made recordings, they've left documents that might not have been immediately available but were, but were eventually available to historians such as yourself. What about, for instance, the Bush White House now? Uh, do you think it's keeping records that will help historians understand the past? Or do you think that things have, have gotten uh, too tight for the sake of history? I think they're not doing enough. And that is true in general these days because people in a White House are advised not to keep records because they might be subpoenaed or they might be leaked. And particularly in this White House, I think, which tends to be 
somewhat secretive. And the problem is that, for instance, I could not, not write the book that we're talking about if I didn't have the kind of sources that I think are not being made nowadays. For instance, these Morgenthau tapes I was talking about, those allowed me to really give actual dialogue about what was said or that give us an idea of what Roosevelt said to people in the room behind closed doors that would have been lost if you didn't have that kind of record or a diary. For instance, Roosevelt had a secretary of the interior, Harold Ickes, whose son later was a deputy chief of staff to President Clinton. Ickes kept a six million word diary, which is absolutely terrific for historians because especially Ickes the Elder hated just about everyone and he just spills into this diary all the reasons that he hates all these people around him, which are really sort of juicy things to quote. But he also takes down this wonderful dialogue that allows you to take a reader into the room uh, and know something that happened 50 or 60 years ago, for instance. He says in this diary, as far as I'm concerned, the Germans all should be sterilized after what they did in World War II. These are the kind of records that nowadays are not being kept. And one of the reasons for them not being kept these days is that we Americans feel that Things should be transparent. There should be a lot of reportage that things should be subpoenaed if necessary, and I think that's absolutely right. But the bizarre result is that it may have the opposite effect, which is that the records just will not be kept at all. And the result of that could be that someone like me could end up having to write a history of the Bush administration or another presidency of this period, almost from speeches and press releases, because you won't have something like the Ickes diary or the Morgenthau tapes. Michael Beschlars, thank you so much for talking with us. Pleasure. This, of course, was the German national anthem recorded in August 2007 from anthems.com. I want to thank Rick and Bob for their assistance, and let's open it up for comments. Don, that was absolutely terrific. It was so good, the outstanding interview, and the music I started marching around my uh, den here. Well, uh, what did you all think about it? Did you did you enjoy re- reading this book? I did, um, primarily because, of course, I was a history major in at at a at the time a very 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 conservative women's college, and they basically took our histories up to prior to World War One. And really, we got very, very little uh, knowledge in the four years and one semester I was there about what actually happened um, from 1914 on up through 1972 when I graduated. So I'm always interested to read as much about that whole period as possible. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I thought it was a great book. I'm not quite finished with it. I'm anxious to do it now. Tonight will be a late night, but it'll be a happy one. Uh, I thought the interview was just outstanding, and I liked that when the author said he was a micromanager. That's my problem. But 
he was on top of his own research. And you've got to be. You've got to be, especially writing a history. You want it as accurate as you can. I knew that Roosevelt knew about the Jewish issue, you know, genocide, but he really spells it out as to why Roosevelt uh, did. You know, there there would have Huey Long could have got a hold of this, and maybe he was overly sensitive. But those were the times, and I was uh, not not surprised with the anti-Semitic statements of Truman and some of these guys. You know, remember Truman was called the senator of Pendergast, the Pendergast machine. And, um, yes, he did some great things, but he was just a, you know, down-home farmer with the view, uh, uh, Jews are cheap, this is Kike City. This We heard this all the time as kids. Yeah, uh, Bob, can you hear me now? We can hear you. Okay, Tim Cummings. Two quick quotes, uh, two quick comments. Um, Cheryl and I both read the book. One point about Truman uh, the other interesting thing, this was mentioned in the book, and uh, I've also seen it other places. One of Truman's best friends during World War I, who he served with, was a guy who he later opened up a, a hat shop with, who I think last name was Jacobson or Jacobs. And uh, as long as Truman knew him, uh, and although he was his best friend, he would. He was never invited to Truman's house because Truman's wife would never let Jews in into his uh, home, into their home. Second point, and this was not one that was brought up, but it was interesting, and I'd like other people's comments. What amazed me about the book was how Roosevelt uh, played all these people off against each other in his administration, in his cabinet, and never told anyone what was really going on. I mean, so the fact that when Truman, even when Truman became president, he knew nothing about the atomic bomb. He knew nothing about any of this stuff. And it's just amazing how Roosevelt, you know, did this thinking that he was being so sly and clever. But, uh, you know, he he played all his um, all his cabinet, you know, off against each other. That just astounded me. I couldn't help wondering reading this book, though, uh, frankly, I... W a lot of things about it, I was disappointed in Roosevelt, and I I never had felt that way before, and I was really sorry that that came across. But I think in his defense, you know, I don't think he was very well for a good deal of the time that was covered in that book. And I just wonder if that shouldn't have been emphasized more than it was, because some of the erratic things that he did and changed his mind and said, I don't remember, I believe he didn't remember I think you're right, Jill. Um, he was sick for a lot of the time. His memory was bad. I thought that that was pointed out a lot. Um, and also, the times were that everyone was afraid of everyone who wasn't like them. And this was a, a totally WASP government. So anyone who isn't, who is, uh, has a different religion, the Catholics and the Jews were just totally out. The Jews just were more... Um, spoken of, but you, you, you had to be a wasp to be in government. That's just the way it was. You had to be a wasp to really do anything, and really it was John Kennedy who broke that barrier down when he became president. I mean, gosh, he was the first Roman Catholic to become, or, and the only one thus far to be president. However, he he actually paved the door i mean paved the way for barack obama and you know all this ethnicity to be widely accepted i mean i can remember as a kid overhearing a friend of my parents say to my father tom for a catholic you're a nice guy and I turned around and I said, as I was a mouthy little kid, for a Protestant, you're pretty stupid for saying something like that. Well, I remember a, com a common remark was, gee, that's mighty white of you. You, you heard that on the radio, an old-time radio in different places. It was a common remark. You know, when I grew up in the Bay Area and had neighbors that were Jewish, and there was a Jewish guy in our scout troop, maybe two, I don't remember, but... When I went to San Diego to live, uh, we, my wife's church, there were friends of ours were a couple. One was, who was, the husband was Jewish, 
And they got a lot of crap from both the the Episcopals and the uh, Jewish Community Center there because we went with them once there, and uh, they they didn't always get the best treatment. Well, I forget Tim's second question. I've heard the one about Bess wouldn't let uh, a Jew in her home. You know, uh, I've heard he was a haberdashery. Yeah, they were they were working together. Um, I forget his second comment. I hope he'll remind us again. Uh, but yeah, he. I think that they stressed Jill that his memory was slipping, especially after you know after into his fourth term. Everybody's you know he's a dying man, uh, and so forth. And uh, um, now I wanted to ask about Yalta because I thought at Yalta that Roosevelt was much criticized for selling out totally to Stalin, but uh, Beschloff doesn't quite make it that bad. Uh, we worried more maybe more about Churchill at times. Uh, talk about Yalta. Who, who can give us a handle on Yalta a little more? Because they didn't agree to do anything to partition Germany yet. They said, let's let's get to the end of the war. And, uh, you know, Stalin was manipulating, yes. But, uh, you know, Roosevelt, um, I think he got sick the first day there or something. But um, I know I always used to hear in, in history, well, that was the big sellout where he was too sick to go to Yalta. He shouldn't have gone. And I... I kind of missed that. I'm going to read the Yalta chapter again. What I was, you know, what the uh, book starts out with the uh, where they try to assassinate Hitler, and I forgot the guy's name. But and there, apparently the British had um, were helping out a number of other groups, and I wondered if they'd assassinated him. They're wondering would they ever have gotten the unconditional surrender? Would I don't think that that policy would have held. I think they would have sued for peace. Absolutely, I don't think it would have held. I don't think a, one thing that stuck out in my mind uh, was when Truman went to Potsdam and he was, you know, lacking in confidence because he didn't know anything yet. And then he got the report about the atomic bomb and they said he was a changed man, Churchill said. He was bossy. He just told the Russians what he thought because he had the power. Truman did until the Russians stole the secrets and all that. But he had the power at that moment and he was a, he was a changed man. And that, that was the point I'd made before, Bob, and I wanted people to comment about this. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, you as being a history teacher and, and Don and whoever else wants to comment. I was stunned by how Roosevelt and even, yes, granted that some of the stuff was later on in his, in his administration when he wasn't well and his own doctor knew he wasn't well. Um, I don't know if he was ever told that, you know, that he had... He had real, you know, heart problems and so forth. But what amazed me was how Roosevelt deliberately played, would play off all his cabinet against each other and tell one of them one thing and someone someone else, thinking that, you know, in the end he could kind of straighten it all out. And in for some, some because he thought he was so clever. And I think, in, you know, in retrospect, that was a pretty, um, pretty reckless thing to do. Because now these people, I mean, Truman became president. He didn't know about the atom bomb. He didn't know, you know, he he had no clue about anything that was going on. And Roosevelt just thought he could kind of, you know, treat his cabinet as kind of pawns on a chessboard, kind of manipulating all of them. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take I'll take a stab at it. Believe it or not, people with that much power amassed in their hands are also afraid, are also paranoid. Who's going to get me? Uh, I, I agree with you, Morgenthau, 100%. I agree with you, Stimson, 100%. You know, and he, and he play, you're right. He, that's how he kept them off balance. He played one against the other. He was a, he, he, you know, this is how some of these presidents have their power. You know, this is how they retain it. And, uh, everything's top secret. Uh, he has a, an inner circle. I think Harry Hopkins was privy to a lot of it. I think he probably knew a lot of information and was the headhunter. He, he would uh, eliminate certain people. Mrs. Roosevelt, she, she was really a terror. I mean, she'd tell him when she disagreed with him. And when he um, appointed James Dunn from the State Department, who, who tried to write a directive, even though it was totally opposed to what they had agreed on, James Dunn, uh, Eleanor had warned him about James Dunn. And he, but he was sick and he didn't know. And uh, Jill, I agree with you when he said, "Oh, did I sign it? I don't remember what I'm signing." That was time to get rid of him. That was. I'm amazed. And you wonder where the Congress was, you know, in this book. You don't hear anything, do you, about 
the Congress and, uh, of course, they hid his ineptness, you know, uh, I guess, at the end. They, they circled the wagons and just hit, hit him, hid that. And uh, that's what uh, Beschloff's trying to point out. Another guy that, that I'm not surprised wasn't really a bad dude was Joe Kennedy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't blame him for being angry at FDR. His son was killed. But he said, that cripple SOB killed my son. You know, and I, I hate him, and uh, and uh, I'm going to vote for Dewey. And Joe Kennedy uh, was was not a pleasant guy to be around in those days. And he had broken with Roosevelt. You know, he was ambassador to London, and he had broken with the president. But I think what I see here is that, uh, from this book anyway, is that <laughs> Roosevelt was human. We make a legend out of him, you know, and he did get us through the war. He did do that. But, boy, some of the... Some of the things he did to do that were just amazing. Well, he got us through the war. He got the economy on track, and he did it. Um, you say power. I think loyalty. I think if he, if he told these people, yeah, I'm with you, I agree with you, they, they owed their loyalty to him, and I think that was something that was very important to him. Um, and he had the horrible economy to go through, and he had then then there was no 26th amendment so therefore they had nothing in place to declare him incompetent so what do you do i i hope the country has learned from all of this um not to have <laughs> poorly placed loyalty because it's true i mean if the people had really thought about they never would have elected him for his fourth term and the by the third term, of course, uh, we were on, right on the verge of war, and, and people were afraid to make any changes. And besides, he had done some, as we're saying, had done some wonderful things in terms of the economy. Uh, it's too bad a president has to deal with both war and what's going on in the country, just as Obama's having to deal with it and gets blamed for, you know, whatever you do wrong. But um, I hate to tell you guys, I hate to admit this, <clears throat> but... I was there at the time, and I voted for him. And when he died, people cried. I mean, really, you you felt it absolutely that it was a personal loss. That's the kind of reverence he generated. Um, and it's it's too bad that happened. I hope it never happens again. Oh yes, I want to I want to say flat out, and I I rate him with Lincoln, the top two presidents in history. That's one man's opinion. Yes, we see. We can point the seamy side of Lincoln as well. He was no picnic to live with either. But you're right, Jill. I think you hit it when you said that it's just so much that the president must handle, and he's got to depend on cabinet members and and assistants who are manipulating to get what they want out of it. You know, they're not there. And Nick, Mickey, you're right about loyalty. Yes, if you were loyal, Morgenthau, you know, would worry, you know, did I do good with the president? And Eleanor, yeah, you're good, but I'm loyal to him. I'm going to stay with him. You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to be loyal. And he just couldn't tell a loyal friend that he was off on the Morgenthau plan. He was wrong on, on that one. But no, with all of that. Oh, no. I remember when Roosevelt died. I was very, very young, though. And I, I was riding a tricycle and I uh, or yeah, tricycle. And they said the president Roosevelt died, and I went over the curb. I just went. It wasn't that I couldn't see. I, I knew the street, and I just, how are we going to make it? Who's going to run this country, Dad? You know, I don't know. And and everybody cried. I remember that. Um, and the people didn't know how sick he was. The people had no clue because every time that the president sniffles now, the whole country knows it. But it wasn't that way back then. We we didn't. They didn't feel we had a need to know everything, and I'm I'm sort of in agreement to a point. Um, I think it's carried too far. But people didn't know how sick he was, and the loyalty of the American people. You either loved him or you hated him. There was just no middle, just like Obama, you know. And I, I think. Um, I, I know that I would have voted for him all four times had I been able to vote. Yeah, I was just surprised at the uh, the, the secrecy of, of Roosevelt and uh, and how he played one cabinet member off against another cabinet member, and just can't imagine in, in like our day and time that 
you know, that the if the vice president had to step into the president's shoes, you know, he had just no clue whatsoever as to what was going on. Um, I had just uh, last couple of weeks, uh, Terry Gross had a interview on with another author, and the book was about uh, how um, Roosevelt tried to pack the Supreme Court with 12 people, and and he mentioned there, uh, the author mentioned there how secretive uh, the the president was, and I guess I was a little bit taken aback or shocked about the uh, um, the, the talking of, of the Jews. I, I'm just not. Not, main reason was I, I just I'm not used to, used to that kind of talk about you know uh, just a you know Jew boy and stuff like that. I just wasn't brought up to to do that, and uh, I was just surprised at, at that. Not really surprised, I guess. Here you go. Hi, uh, this is Cheryl, and um, so I wanted to throw out something to talk about. Um, we've suggested that Roosevelt was a bit of a micromanager. Um, and a control freak, and we've put it in polite terms about loyalty and all these types of things. And I'm wondering if anybody thinks that some of this might have been influenced by the fact that he was disabled and somebody who had to depend on other people to a great extent to get from point A to point B. And so one of the ways you sort of maintain control of your environment is that you keep everybody else sort of off balance, and you do that by sort of agreeing with everybody or you're sort of manipulating people. Hey, that's pretty thought-provoking, Cheryl. That's very good. I, I, do, I do know that it appears in his life that he was, he really was, he knew he, well, obviously he was disabled, but he did, he did not go public with it. He was in denial. He had a, a Jimmy... Roosevelt and Elliot, his sons, would hold him up while he stood up, you know. And, in fact, uh, when he gave his famous Day of Infamy speech, right before it, he'd fallen. He'd gotten out of his chair and fallen flat in his face. And they dusted him off and got him up to the microphone. And he stood up. Uh, and the disability people are what argued over Hyde Park, uh, whether, you know, he should be shown in a wheelchair or not, because he didn't want to be. Uh, you're right. That's one way. Uh, if you are disabled, I've known some people that way. Control your environment. Keep everybody off balance. Love everybody, but love at a club, as this one guy that Don and I know. You you love them, but you get rid of people. Suddenly someone disappears. You know, I, I think he wasn't in denial of his disability, but he was very realistic. The public knew he was paraplegic, quad, yeah, paraplegic or was in a wheelchair, but... They never saw it, and that, that was a rule. You never took his pi- – there's only one picture, I think, of him in a wheelchair. And uh, uh, he, I, I think if you were a news team and never did that, you would never be on the presidential train again. Uh, I'm, but uh, I think to see how much that manipulation – I think we'd have to see what he was like before he got polio. He'd been secretary, uh, assistant secretary of the Navy and a few things and was on his way up. I was thinking as a secondary thing is how many of our greater great presidents or more effective ones at least uh, were very manipulative. I think Lincoln did the same thing. He had a team of rivals, but he had no choice. And he was very close to Stanton and a a couple others. And then uh, I'm thinking of Johnson. There was no more manipulative guy in the world than Lyndon Johnson, uh, who who played some of those very same games, and Nixon, uh, you know, and uh, I think Reagan probably was run by other people. But anyway, I, I wonder what other people think. Oh yeah, that was it the classic one uh, where Johnson, Lyndon, who who I who I liked as a politician, but I'd never vote for him after reading Master of the Senate. I, I remember it was a long time, but when he they wanted him. Um, to fire J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, I know I wasn't a great fan of him. but it, And the reporter had to go into the bathroom while Lyndon was doing whatever is done in the bathroom, you know. And he just said, oh, I'm listening to you. I listen. Yeah, I guess I'll fire him. And then he make, gives him a life job he, the next day. And it's well, I guess I showed that blank, blank Ben Bradley and those guys with the Washington Post. But he makes him go into the bathroom for the interview. And uh, it's a little much. 
quite a manipulator, Lyndon Johnson. I wonder if you have to be, uh, if if you have to be a manipulator and tough. There are words for it, but they're ladies. I don't want to do this here, but you know what I mean. To be president, I just wonder to be an effective one. Well, you've got to, you know, he he got rid of uh, was it Pal or whatever who was a, a friend of his mother or of his family, uh, and he talked to Statinius. He said get rid of him, and he probably, maybe he had good reason, but it, friendship didn't matter. I mean, Roosevelt could have gotten rid of his own brother, fire him. Of course, his son-in-law was around there a long time. But I think you have to have a little of that in you, that toughness to um, succeed. I don't think any politician can succeed without some of that in him. And sometimes the decisions are hard for them to make, but they make them. They feel they have to. And most of them are control freaks. And that's what we need. And you don't want somebody who's wishy-washy. But I don't honestly believe that... um, Johnson would have ever become president on his own. Um, the 1964 election, he really rode in on, on still on Kennedy's um, popularity. I think if he'd have stayed out of Vietnam, he, 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 with his war on poverty, he might have uh, did it. And, uh, you know, I, after reading, I don't think it was Master of the Senate or the book of how he, 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 the corrupt way he won some of those elections in Texas. I was so mad I didn't finish the book, but I remember I was a social worker in San Diego when the war on poverty started and the difference it made in some of the poorer parts of town. It, it, people had legal assistance for once in their life when they got in, got problems and things, and it really made a big difference. And the black population really gives Johnson all the credit for the civil rights movement, you know, so you have to be tough to, to make those things happen. And I think it's it's too bad that we don't want our politicians to be wishy-washy, but I think we've come a, a long way in the wrong direction that our politicians aren't really looking out for the good of the country. Instead, they're looking out for the good of their party. Yeah, I think, I think Jill, uh, you're right that uh, that's very true what you said there, all of that. I think that uh, uh, John Kennedy, had he had eight years... Would have, would have struggled with the civil rights. He would have been for it, but he couldn't have got it through. I think with his death and then with the great manipulator, the master of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson pounding through there. I think Johnson, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he rammed it through. And without Vietnam, he might have gone down as a great president. The war on poverty, the great society, civil rights, voting rights and all that has to be impressive. But that Vietnam got him. Well, the same is true. For Nixon, he would have been a great president if he had just uh, left Watergate alone and not even, you know, thought about having them break into the Democratic uh, headquarters. I mean, look what he did opening the doors to China, and it, it probably will end up to be our undoing. I mean, because look at China is our Roman slave, and, uh, you know, but uh, I think Nixon foreign policy was absolutely you know one of the finest foreign policies uh, we had after he got us out of vietnam well i know the hour is getting late but the, the question is we don't know how i don't know how polio changed him this was a rich kid right he he would have he would have uh, he may have run for president later but he but he also did things to help the poor he really did. John Kennedy said when he went to Appalachia that that changed him a lot. That really got to him. And Bobby Kennedy helped him, too, I think, changed him with Cesar Chavez and all that. Uh, but something's got to do it. Because when you're a rich kid, the implication is stay rich and roll on. You know, let him eat cake or whatever. But Roosevelt, I think with polio, uh, Cheryl, going back to your comment, which I think is really good, maybe taught him some humility, taught him to be a little bit humble and uh, help those who cannot help themselves, because that's where he's great, the many, many things he did. Uh, yeah, you can argue, oh, he didn't get us out of the Depression, World War II did, and he didn't do this, but he got people to work. And that's what I think Obama should have concentrated on, not the health plan, which I think is, is great. I think all Americans should be under some coverage. He should have headed for jobs. I don't care if it's raking leaves. Get people working.
What did everyone think? I thought the other interesting part of the book was the the part the piece that came out about the guy who was working for Morgenthau, who it comes out now was uh, spying for the Russians. Was that uh, was that uh, oh Harry Dexter White? I think that was him, right? And the Whitaker Chambers business. I I don't know there. You know, Don, any thoughts on what we know about Whitaker Chambers? And now they they uh, didn't they find that Elger Hisk was not guilty after all? Boy. And those, uh, you know, you entered the McCarthy era, uh, but Harry Dexter White, when I saw his name, I said, oh, brother, you know, that was, that was bad news. The Russians were getting agents in our government. Yeah, I, I looked up his name just before we went on in Wikipedia, and according to them, uh, Harry Dexter White uh, did communicate with the Russians quite a bit before World War II. Now, he also uh, was running a, a, a sort of a non governmental agency, I don't know who paid for it, on, on economics, and, and a lot of the people he hired didn't have to go through the FBI security thing like they even had it then during the 30s, and he, he did get a lot of his people in, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure, did the book talk about some, something about screwing up the currency in Germany, whether he was responsible for that, but uh, he... He, he and uh, Morgenthal were responsible for the uh, IMF and the uh, World Bank that everybody complains about nowadays, that, uh, they, the uh, Bretton Woods Treaty. They, uh, Harry Dexter White wrote that, and he, apparently they, they also said he was, uh, did a lot of the work in writing the Morgenthal Plan itself. Yeah, and Cordell Hull was not – sometimes historians paint him as a great Secretary of State – but Roosevelt was his own Secretary of State. He kind of bullied Cordell Hall. I saw that. And Morgan thought, you know, the question is, should he been writing a plan for Germany? You know, the the peace of Germany. He was, he was Secretary of the Treasury. It's State Department, if you go that way. And uh, but he kept he kept fighting. And uh, so, what can we say? Don, I hate to end this, but what book have you got in mind next time? I was going to play this, but I think I better try to. Um, Let's see if I can find the DB number. I, I will do that. But uh, with our next book, I uh, Sherry Wells had recommended Citizens by uh, Chama, uh, Simon Chama, but it was uh, the 37 hours and covers only five years of history of the, of the French Revolution. So what I have selected is uh, Rough Crossings by Simon Chama, and it, it is about the um, some 80 to 100,000 Afro-Americans fled the U.S. to go behind British lines during the Revolutionary War with the promise of Lord Dunsmore's promise of freedom. Some joined his Ethiopian legion and served in other troops, and uh, a lot of them were able to immigrate to Nova Scotia, and then to Sierra Leone. It also talks about the beginnings of the British uh, anti-slavery movement in England, and it was a court decision, pre-civil, a free revolutionary court decision by Justice Mansfield that said that you couldn't be a slave in England, and you couldn't transport you to the colonies to be one. But uh, uh, so I think it's a very interesting book and. The book is Rough Crossings, Britain, the Slaves, and the American Revolution. And it's uh, DB639, uh, Let me look that up just a second. And you're rattling your microphone. If you could, if you could uh, I don't know what you're doing there. Good choice. Uh, that would be, be interesting. And, uh, Bob, I think that it, it has come out now that Alger Hiss was guilty. Um, as a result of some of the files that have most recently come out, that Whitaker Chambers was actually right, that Alger Hiss was spying for the uh, for Russia for a, quite a long time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, in my old age, I reversed it. Yeah, he was guilty. Whittick, the, the, the question for years is, is, was Whitaker Chambers lying and all that? But he was guilty. Okay, I'll put that in my compartment here and uh, keep that in mind. It, it, yeah, it, it, I had it right, DB64394, and it's uh, Rough Crossings by Simon Shaw, and he's written a couple of three uh, TVs, 
specials, so the one on the history of Britain, which is a series of 15 programs, and he's doing one now, that was for the BBC, he's doing one for, or did one for P, uh, PBS also. Great, are you going to get one of your good interviews? That was one of the best. That was super. Oh my God, the music. <laughs> Leave it to the Germans. And how do you spell this author's last name, please? And can you talk a little louder, please? Yeah, sorry, I, this mic, you have to talk, right? You have to eat it. Um, his name is, first name is S. Simon, S-I-M-O-N, and Shama, S-C-H-A-M-A, -A. Uh, Simon Shama, and uh, you'll have no trouble. Uh, he's, got several, he's got several books on Bard, and, uh, uh, but I couldn't find anything on Citizens, unfortunately, or I might have done that one. <laughs> I still have second thoughts, but this is a good story, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, and I guess uh, we meet on the uh, Wednesday, the 19th of May. So we should want to thank you guys for coming. You're, you're loyal and good readers. And um, thank you, Don, for an outstanding meeting. So we'll be officially through for the editor's purposes here. Thank you.